Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, credit to Jared. He is, in fact, correct. This is week eight of a series we've called Road Trip with Jesus. And uh, those of you joining us for the first time today, think of yourselves as hitchhikers. And uh, we happily have pulled off the side of the road. Uh, we've got a spare seat for you. And we want you to know we've been expecting you. And in fact, as it happens, uh, we've already covered a lot of ground on this road trip. Uh, a little bit of a uh, look through the rear view mirror. See, the metaphor just keeps on rolling. We started with road to victory. Moving on, we went down the road to blessing, took a turn down the road to healing, went over the crest of the hill of the road to resilience, discovered there was a road to greatness. Thankfully, also a road to a second chance. And last week, road to restoration. And these are all uh, slices from Jesus' life while He actually walked on this earth. And uh, I've heard it said that everybody who met Jesus while He walked the earth, everybody that met Him went away transformed. And that sounds great, doesn't it? Except it's absolutely not true. There are some people that met Jesus and they went away exactly the same as when they came to Him. Because it's not actually enough to encounter Jesus. There actually needs to be a response from us. There actually needs to be a willingness for us to wanna actually submit ourselves to Him. To wanna say, you know what? I know I've just met you and boy, this miracle I've seen you do, I'd love to have that in my life. Rather than say, bravo Jesus, good job and then walk away. Or rather than say, maybe that's fine for them, but no deal for me. No, we've got to come to Him with an open heart and a willing heart. So actually, and again, I said this a few weeks ago, this is not guilt trip with Jesus, but this is going to sound like I'm putting you on a guilt trip, and I'm not. But here's the thing, everybody that's taught these messages and done a great job, it's actually worthless for you if you haven't and aren't taking these things and actually applying them in your life. And one of the things we can do is we can actually settle. We can settle for something that, that's less than God's best. We can actually just get by. And what these uh, high points of Jesus' life, um, the reason we chose these, and the reason we're teaching these, and the reason we're leaning into these, is these are some of the, the top 10 things that mattered most to Jesus. And His uh, idea of coming here and teaching them and demonstrating them and, and showing them isn't just so He could show off what matters to Him, is that we could actually be people that expose ourselves to that and calibrate us, our lives, and make what matters to Jesus what matters to us. And if we're willing to do that, especially leaning into a new year, if we're willing to say, man, if this is the stuff that matters to Jesus, I'm going to actually make it matter to me this year. And this stuff, as much as I'm all for New Year's resolutions, if that's your shtick, this stuff is way better than a set of New Year's resolutions. This is the stuff that actually sees us jumping in Jesus' slipstream, going where He goes, walking where He walks, and by the way, therefore experiencing what He in fact is experiencing. This morning, I want to talk about the road to the good life. Now, it's not a health club, although it is. Uh, there's, a, there's a word that's kind of popped up in the last five years. It's not a word, it's more of an acronym. The, the, the acronym is FOMO. And uh, if you skip the generation, FOMO literally stands for fear 
of missing out. And uh, whilst it sort of came up on the radar as a new word, a new acronym, now it's actually quantifiable. Mark Zuckerberg has caved to the demands of the millennials and the Gen Zers with their FOMO, and he's actually put a FOMO button on Facebook. It's not called a FOMO button, it's called the interested button. When someone posts an event, when someone invites you to something, you now, you used to have two options in life. I'm going or I'm not going. But now you can click the FOMO button and say, well, I'm interested. What that's saying to the event organiser is, so far, that's my best option. But because it's still a few weeks off, I'm just gonna let you know I'm interested, but I sure as heck aren't gonna commit to by clicking the going button just in case in the next three weeks something better shows up that I don't wanna the next day be experiencing some FOMO hangover. And this is not a helpful button because if that's you organising the event, let's say, for example, it's your wife's 40th birthday, your wife's having a 40th birthday, and you put out the event on Facebook well in advance, give people plenty of notice, which by the way, is the mistake you've made. You've given the millennials way too much runway to think probably between now and then something more interesting is gonna come up. So they click into so, so it's now about five days out and you know you've got to do the catering and you've got to organise the drinks and you've got, you know, and, and, you, and you go into the event and you think to yourself, all right, this is it. You say, well, I know I invited 50 people. So let me check the going, and the going is three. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the not going is two. And then there's 45 people interested. This is not helpful, people. This is actually bordering on abuse. Some of you are rightly squirming right now. That's my favorite button. Never mind events for, for a second, but do you ever feel like maybe just in life that you're missing out? Not only people inviting you, introverts love to not be invited to stuff. <laughs> they didn't invite me, yes! <laughs> but maybe you ever found yourself wondering if just there's some, maybe there's something more to life. Like life's okay, but could it be better? Could there be more fulfillment? Could there be more purpose? Has God actually got me here for more than what I'm doing now? Well, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna, if you've got this kind of like, maybe I'm missing out on life, let me, let me make you feel better about yourself. Let me give you some classic examples of some people who have missed out on some stuff that'll make you feel better about your life. Lead movie roles. There was a number of years ago, a movie called Elf. And uh, how many have watched Elf? How many have seen this movie? How many love Elf? You love Christmas, you love Elf? So no, no question about it. And, and Will Ferrell, I mean, come on. He killed that role. Didn't he do a great job? If you've seen it, a great, great job. But did you know that Will Ferrell was not actually the producer's first choice for the role as the Elf? Anyone, anyone know or want to guess who was? No? Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey was considered and approached first, but he turned it down. He, the reason he turned it down is because the previous year he'd played the Grinch and he felt a little bit kind of conflicted if the following year he came out as the elf uh, because last year he stole Christmas and uh, just <laughs> would be kind of weird for everybody. So he passed. Uh, what, about, uh, what about this one? 
Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump was on, uh, was on uh, the uh, main, main, uh, lamestream uh, TV last night. Uh, Forrest Gump. Uh, Tom Hanks won the Best Actor Award and this movie won six Academy Awards. But Tom Hanks was not the first person approached to play the role of Forrest Gump. Anyone want to guess who was? Anyone? Anyone? The answer is John Travolta. John Travolta was. And... Uh, <laughs> I know, I know you're going like, what? I, I, look, I get it. I get it. This is a guy who has moves that are electrifying. <laughs> this is a guy who was riffing about a royale with cheese whilst taking his, his friend's drink because he wanted to taste what a $5 milkshake tasted like. So can you picture him telling you that sometimes life is like a box of chocolates? Okay, and but... John Travolta is on record as saying that turning down this role was the biggest mistake of his acting career. Now, those of you who have far too much time to waste in your life have watched The Lord of the Rings and uh, you'll never get those 10 and a half hours back. Uh, <laughs> one, of the, one, of the, one of the key actors is, uh, one of the key uh, roles is this guy, Gandalf, the white wizard. Gandalf was played by Ian McLennan. Ian McLennan, a British actor known more for his stage uh, roles, uh, but he wasn't the first person approached for that role. Anyone want to guess who the first person approached was? The answer is Sean Connery. And uh, Sean Connery. And the reason that Sean Connery turned the role down is, is he read the script and he got, it's of the first mo movie, and he got to the end of it and he said, I didn't get it. <laughs> and so he said, No. And so the producers tried to sweeten the deal. And they said, look, we really want you for this role. In fact, so much so, how about we bake into your contract, not just your appearance fee, but 15% of the global box office takings for the, for the first movie. Would, would you then be interested? He still said no and forfeited the opportunity to earn US $436 million on top of his appearance fee. See, these stories, all of a sudden, you feel better about your life. <laughs> Missing out ain't so bad after all. Well, my stuff I missed out, I'm not so bad after all, right? The problem is this is short-lived. Very short-lived because you remember, hang on a second, Jim Carrey, I think he's actually done all right. Dumb and Dumber, Bruce Almighty, I bet you he's not lining up at Centrelink tomorrow. No, I bet you he isn't. Or maybe you're flying over one of John Travolta's homes, this home in Florida, you're flying over John Travolta's home and you notice, is that a Boeing 707 parked in the front of his house? Yes. Not only do you not have a Boeing 707 parked in the front of your house, you wouldn't be able to fit it in even if you did. It's not a toy. This picture is to scale. <laughs> and Sean Connery, whilst he forfeited US $436 million, does have a net worth of $350 million. And whilst I don't know you all, I'm pretty sure not every one of you has got $350 million in your bank yet. The good news is, in fact, that the great news is, is that Jesus' perspective on the good life and what he ultimately shows and teaches is the good life is actually available to everybody. It's not just available to a select few. And you, if you're still breathing, you actually haven't missed the opportunity yet to take advantage of the good life if you're not yet 
taking advantage of it. So I want to airdrop us into a story. It's a story that's recorded by a guy named Luke. Now, Luke, uh, one of the things I like about reading Luke's account of Jesus' life and Jesus' road trip, and by the way, if you've got our app, uh, you can open the Bible title. It's going to take you to that uh, slice from Luke. But one of the things I like about Luke, uh, there's four people wrote the kind of account of Jesus' life, the, the, his road trip and his journey and his life. Luke However, one of the things that set him apart is he actually wrote his account long after Jesus had left the building. Luke, in fact, was a doctor, a medical doctor, and he'd been hearing after Jesus had died, resurrected, gone to heaven, he'd been hearing about this new movement, these people that declare themselves to be followers of this guy named Jesus. And and it was so amazing to him. And he was hearing stories about what Jesus did. And it was so amazing to him that he put on the kind of uh, private investigator, investigative journalist kind of hat and went about interviewing eyewitnesses people that actually saw and were with and and were actually there when Jesus did what he did throughout his life. And so Luke's writing and and, and Luke's account of Jesus' life and and, and his road trip were were actually uh, eyewitness accounts, collaborator. He's not not an idiot. You know, this is a a highly educated man. And so he wrote about this particular slice, which, spoiler, is actually a story that Jesus called that we now refer to as the story of the Good Samaritan. And the reason I can do a spoiler there, and I appreciate not all of you are church people, is that the Good Samaritan phrase, that's just an everyday phrase now. If you watch the news and somebody's left into the raging river to fish a dog out, they've been called the Good Samaritan. Anyone that does something that's a little bit extraordinary, helps somebody beyond kind of the bare minimum, we use the the phrase, the Good Samaritan. Well, let's explore the backstory about the Good Samaritan. So here's Jesus on his next road trip. And just then a religion scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? Now, before we look at Jesus' answer to that, has anyone heard the phrase, ask whole? See, that got your attention, didn't it? (laughs) Listen carefully, read my lips if you have to. Ask whole. Whole. Anyone heard that phrase? An ask whole is somebody that comes to you and asks you a question with absolutely no intention of listening to your answer. An ask whole is somebody that comes to you for advice already predetermined that no matter what you tell them, they're not going to do it. They're coming to you to kind of appear open and appear that they want your insight and appear that they want your perspective, but they don't. They're just, gonna, just an ask whole. And uh, my advice to you is when it comes to Jesus, don't be an asshole. This guy, he was an asshole. He wasn't asking Jesus the question because he wanted to know the answer. He was asking the question because he wanted to trip Jesus up. And here's my thing to you. Here's my thing. This message is no longer rated PG. Here's my advice to you. Don't ask Jesus questions to test him. Ask him questions because you trust him. And that is a completely different perspective. That actually Jesus is somebody that when we come to him with a question, don't come with your, bu- with, the, with your gun fully loaded. Don't come with the answer already scripted out. Don't come with the things that, these are the things that if he says these things, my answer's already no. It makes you an asshole. Come to him and say, Jesus, I've got, like, you, you can have some ideas. Okay, we're not idiots. 
You can have some experience, and our experiences are real. But when we come to Jesus, let's be people that say to him, you know what, Jesus, I do have some thoughts. I do have some experiences. I've got some kind of you know, ideas on what options I might take in this. But you know what? Before I commit to any of them, I'm gonna ask you what you think. And by the way, he might not always tell you what you want to hear. You've got your list of four. He might not even mention any of them. And you think, huh? It's because he's always pointing us to better. Even our best experiences, even our best ideas. If his, if his answer doesn't line up with our experiences and doesn't line up with our ideas, here's my advice. Choose his. Yeah. It's always better. Always. It's not always convenient, as you'll see. It's not always easy, as you'll see. It's not always popular. And it's not always something you've done before. I don't know if I could do that. Sure, but he does. Else he wouldn't have suggested it. Don't be an asshole. And Jesus answered, what's written in God's law? Rhetorical question. How do you interpret it? And the religion scholars said, well, uh, well, that you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence and, and that you love your neighbor as well as you, you do yourself. Jesus like, yep, cheerio, good job, good answer. Uh, and do it, and you'll live. Well, looking for a loophole, the religion scholar asked, and uh, just how would you define neighbor? You don't ask this last question if you're already committed to going all in, to loving everybody. You only ask this question if when Jesus tells you or reminds you or you've said, love your neighbors yourself, some names appear on your radar. Anyone got anyone in, in their life that's difficult to love? Anyone? Yeah. Any of you? Any of you? <laughs> See, and so we could just as easily be this guy. Well, Jesus, look, I, man, the first part, love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle. Man, I'm in the first three rows Sunday morning. I'm doing that. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm, man, I, that one, all good. No questions. Now, having said that, about this second one, the love your neighbor bit, just who would you define neighbor? Because you're hoping Jesus doesn't say everyone. And at that time, Jewish people were only required to love other Jewish people because they actually had the perspective that Jewish people were the, only, were the only people that God actually loved. So as a Jewish person, you only had to love while you loved God, also only love the people that God loved. But the problem is you define the people that God loved as Jewish people. Now, we don't do that, do we? No, we don't. But here's what we do. We only love people who are like us too often. And that was the problem that they were up against right here. And it was in that context, this is the backstory. It was in that context that Jesus told this story. There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And on the way, he was attacked by robbers. And they took his clothes, beat him up, and went off leaving him half dead. And then whilst this was a fictional story that Jesus was unpacking, some of it was factual things that he was linking to one being this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 25 kilometers long. And it was known, 
It was known by the locals as the road of blood because it was a very windy road. It had a lot of caves and boulders off to the side and it was a great hiding spot for, for muggers and robbers. And so if you ever went on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, there was a pretty high probability that this was gonna happen to you. It was a thieves' paradise. And so when Jesus goes the road to Jer- Jerusalem, Jericho, the listeners would have gone, oh, that road, crikey. And he says, this is what happened to them. They would have been like, yeah. The news doesn't even report that anymore because it happens so frequently. Well, luckily, Jesus said, luckily, luckily, a priest was on his way. Whew, whew, that's good. Down the same road, but when he, what, what? But when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. This is like you seeing somebody in the aisle at Bunnings coming the other way and you don't like them, so you quickly scooch down the side aisle pretending you're looking for tap screws. Not speaking from personal experience, of course. (laughs) I don't use tap screws. And then a Levite, which is someone who sort of assists in the temple, religious man showed up. Well, okay, well, the priest, at least the religious man's there. But he also avoided the injured man. Now, before all of you perfect people start teaching, what if they just felt unsafe? What if they thought that the very thing that happened to the guy that's now on the side of the road was going to happen to them, and so they'd better just keep scooching along. It's 25 kilometers after all, on foot. Just keep it moving. Stay alive. Maybe. Would you kind of dial back the judgment if they did? Maybe. Hopefully. Only one titch. Not titch titch. The temple assistant, the religious guy, if, if, if he touched someone who was covered in blood, he could actually be fired from his job because he wasn't allowed to touch people and touch blood. It would make him ceremonially unclean and he basically could help the guy and, and become unemployed in, in the act of that. So you think, well, gee, that's not very responsible if he did that, so fair enough. Or get this one. Maybe they were just in a hurry. Maybe the reason they were traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho was because they had to be somewhere at a certain time. And this guy in the way, and that wouldn't have been convenient. So they just kept on barreling down the road. So maybe we'll cut him a little slack for that. Problem is Jesus didn't. He introduced a third character, a Samaritan traveling down the road came on the man who was beaten up. And when he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. And he gave him first aid and disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. And then he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn and made him comfortable. And in the morning, he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper saying, take good care of him. If it costs any more, by the way, put it on my tab and I'll pay you on my way back. Now, this right here, making the Samaritan the hero of the story would have been shocking and not just shocking, but abhorrent to the listeners. Jesus was answering a Jewish religious scholar. That's who asked the question, who's my neighbour? Jewish people considered people from Sumerians half-breeds. And there's a backstory. I don't have time to get into that. But basically, they didn't, they didn't hate them. They just considered them people of, of zero worth. Nothing good could ever come from there. Nothing good has ever come from there. No one from there could ever do anything good. And yet Jesus introduces him as the third character in the story and ultimately makes him a hero, and then he turns to the religion scholar, having told this story, 
and said, what do you think? Which of the three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? And the one who, well, the one who treated him kindly, duh, the religion scholar responded. And Jesus said, yeah, exactly. Now go and do the same. See, in this story, Jesus redefined neighbor as somebody who does something for somebody else that they may not naturally like, they may not naturally have an affinity with, and that isn't convenient. People who love at a personal cost to them. But here's a question. Which of these three characters... I could have said six. Which of these six characters do you want to be? Well, I'm pretty sure you don't want to be the guy that got beaten up. So let's kind of, some of you probably feel that way sometimes, but let's kind of, we don't want to be him. So we'll leave him out, the innkeeper. Okay, good, you know, whatever. If that's, you're into hospitality, maybe you would say that, but let's presume you don't. And, and so you don't say that. And so, okay, so the donkey, let's rule him out of the, of the person you might want to be. Um, so that kind of leaves the, the priest and the Levite, and we kind of lump them into one category because they kind of did the same thing, which was nothing apart from a void. Or the Samaritan. I'm going to ask you for a show of hands, but just ask yourself that question. Really. And not, and not look, don't give me the answer that you'd want to tell people because we all know what you want to tell people. Well, of course I want to be the good Samaritan. Which is why I don't want you to say it out loud because you're all going to say, a oh, good Samaritan, of course. <laughs> but but <laughs> I hope the answer is good Samaritan. I really do, by the way. But then ask the second question, is that your approach? Generally speaking, when you come across somebody or something for whom to love them or love in that situation is going to come at a personal cost to you, are you typically the good Samaritan or are you typically one of the other two knuckleheads? And if there's a gap and this is, again, it's not guilt. It's just this is one of the reasons we actually expose ourselves to God's word is to allow him to actually shine some stuff that in our life that's actually not his best. But by shining it, he's not, trying to, he's not shining to shame. He's shining to bring it out to say, you know what? This is an area that there's still some improvement here. But I'm in with you. I want to encourage you. There's something better. And if you actually go with me on this, You'll experience something better. Because of these three characters, the only one who experienced the fulfillment was the Samaritan. The only one who experienced the good life, which was available to all three of them, well, sort of, I'll come to that, was the Samaritan. So if there's a gap, this is just for you to answer right now. This is dialogue, you and God. Is there a gap? Am I... I remember when I was the good Samaritan, but boy, then there was that time or, oh yeah, come to think of it, there was that time as well. Whatever it is, if there's a gap, you can bridge that gap. But it actually is up to you whether you will. Jesus is showing us how. I'm kind of putting it out there. And here's three things, three uh, essentials that will help you bridge the gap to being both willing and able to be the person that Jesus made the hero, to be the good Samaritan, willing and able, because we need to be both of those things. 
See, Jesus gave us a clue that when this Samaritan saw the man, his heart went out to him. We call that compassion. We, we say in that moment, I'm willing. I see a need. I see an opportunity. I see something that God can use me in. And in that moment of the three, he was the only one in that moment that demonstrated that he was willing. Jesus didn't even bother giving a shout out to the other guys saying, well, they were willing, but they crossed the road. Their heart went out to him, but they crossed the road. No, the only one Jesus even identified that his response was that his heart went out to him was the Samaritan. In other words, the only one of those three who was willing was the Samaritan. And if we're not willing, then able matters for nothing. You don't even get onto able because well, you're not going to. So what, matter, what does it matter if I could? So we've got to be willing. And here's the thing. As obvious as it sounds, not everyone's willing because we're often at the top of, the, of our own organisational chart and our own food chain and our own people who need help the most, right? And I know that there's times and seasons where that's true where we're desperately crying for help and say, I, you know what? I am so stuck right now that I can't help anyone else because I can't even help myself. I'm drowning in quicksand here. And that's why God calls us to do life in community. So that when you are at the person, the robber, I mean the robbie, <laughs> make sure I get that right, or this whole story falls apart. <laughs> when you're the robbie, it's okay. But God's best is not to leave you there. However, here's what you need to understand. When you are the Robbie and while you're the Robbie, it's okay to cry for help. You don't have to be your own good Samaritan in that moment. Understand that? Is that good news? Is that like, phew, man, that's a relief. That's the reason, I've said this before, that's the reason in the airplanes when the things and the, and the masks drop down, they say to the parents, you put yours on first and then put the mask on Junior because you can't help Junior if you're struggling for oxygen yourself. Some of you didn't know that and now you do. I said, we have to be willing. But being willing isn't enough. We also have to be able And this Samaritan demonstrated to us what it looks like to be able. Is that first of all, he made time for the Robbie. He actually paused. He was obviously on the way somewhere himself. He actually paused. He actually moved to the problem. And I wonder, again, not guilt trip. But I wonder if you've ever seen a problem and the reason you haven't been able, at least you've told yourself you're not able. Oh, I'm willing. See the problem. But I just don't have the time. I'm going to click interested, but I'm not going. And in fact, I'm going to wait to see if someone else goes before I go. And by the way, probably if someone else goes, then I won't even bother. I'll say... God bless him. <laughs> we have time. And I got to tell you, I, I, I struggle. I mean, I'm halfway to death right now. And I struggle to remember a time in my short time on this planet that, that we have been so convinced that we need to fill 25 hours a day with stuff. 
if we're filling 25 hours a day and you come across a Robbie, you can have all the compassion in the world, but you're not going to be able to help them because you have the time. How about you try to fill 23 hours a day and leave an hour for God to kind of just do some stuff and use you and visit that person and make that phone call and send that text message and pray for that person that didn't ask you to. Or so many things. Just having that little bit of margin makes us more able. But here's the thing. The Samaritan wasn't just able with his time. And, and, and this is the one. I've never taught on this. I've been sitting on this like 18 years. And it's the one that gets the least amount of uh, airplay about the Samaritan story. He actually had resources. You know, in that moment, the Robbie didn't need prayer. He needed bandages. He needed disinfectant. Let me, let me, let me, let me, <laughs> let me tell you this guy's resources according to Jesus. So he had some time. He also happened to have a first aid kit. He also had a donkey. He also had two silver coins. He also had enough collateral to be able to show up at the inn and start and open a tab. <laughs> See, some of you, if you went to your local hotel and said, I started a tab, they're like, you haven't paid me for last month. So no. And not only did he start a tab, he had enough financial resources to say, to say you know what, I'll come back tomorrow and whatever, whatever he takes from the minibar, Whatever he puts on room service, whatever, the answer is whatever he needs, I'll come back and I'll settle the tab. In two weeks' time, we're launching a series called Like a Boss. And uh, if you're into heavy metal songs, this is going to be the series for you. <laughs> That's fake news. This, uh, well, it's not entirely fake news, but I don't want to give too many spoilers. This is going to be a four-week series on finances. It's not going to be a four-week series on giving. <sighs> Whew, thank God for that. Though we will talk about giving. One of the problems is if we only ever talk, when we talk about finances, if we only ever talk about giving, which God's got a lot to say about, and yet your financial world is a shambles, you can be willing to give but not able. Oh, I'm willing if it wasn't for these dang Visa card statements that keep coming, demanding minimum payment every month. The personal loan. The... So we're going to talk about a lot of what God says to do about finances because I really want to encourage you to be someone. <laughs> In fact, Oh, man, I'm about ready to launch into this series, okay? So I'm kind of like, where's that handbrake? Dang it. Um, <laughs> but let me say this. There's, there's, a little, there's, a, there's a thing that I, I've been a professional Christian for 20 plus years. There's a, there's, a, there's a mindset that I occasionally bump into in Christian world. And the mindset, the mindset, it's only in a pocket, and I'm not being judgy. This is an observation, not a criticism, but I bump into it every now and then. That to be poor means that you're spiritual. And to have some financial resources means you must be materialistic. 
just, there's just a pocket. I don't know, maybe you've bumped, bumped into that yourself. That to be poor means you're spiritual. God's close to you. And to have some financial resources means you've probably thumbed your nose at God, flipped in the bird and made it all about you. Well, here's the problem with that idea. If, if, if the way to be blessed is to be poor, why does God tell us to give to poor people? Because surely by giving poor people some resources, we're stealing their blessing. What God's ultimately, when he talks about us having an abundance of resources, is make sure that you don't make it first about you. People twist this. Money's the root of all evil. Bible says money's the root of all evil. No, it doesn't. Read the Bible. Anyone says it sometime? Read it. Read it. Money's the root of all evil. No, it's in the Bible. No, it's not. Paul says it's the love of money. That's the root of all evil. What about, when it comes to resources, what about the love of compassion when it comes to resources? What about the love of being someone who can be the good Samaritan who wasn't just willing, he or she was also able? Two coins, I got coins. Open the tab, I can open the tab. Was that, was that Samaritan, do you think, when you hear about his story? Was he, was he materialistic? Oh, boy, he had a donkey. Man, it's like a, it's like a Vespa. Man, I mean, jeez. People that get around on donkeys and scooters, I mean, they're just materialistic. Anyway, yeah, just, we're going to talk about that. Have a good day.